This is Nuclear Explained. Welcome to Nuclear Explained, the podcast where we learn about nuclear technology and how it benefits so many aspects of our lives. I'm Joanne Liu. And I'm Miklos Gaspar. Two years into the pandemic, in this first episode, we'll talk about zoonotic diseases, including COVID-19. Zoonotic diseases are the type of diseases that are passed from animals to humans. We'll tell you what nuclear has to do with zoonotic diseases and the pandemic. Nuclear and the pandemic, not an obvious pair. But after talking to three experts from around the world about this topic, I learned about the role of nuclear in preparing for the next pandemic, detecting the virus, and even producing vaccines. By detecting, we of course mean PCR testing. PCR has become a household name over the last two years. In this episode, we'll learn what a PCR test is and just how prevalent zoonotic diseases are. First, we'll hear from virologist, Dr. Thomas Mentenleiter. He'll tell us about the relationship between the health of humans, animals, and the environment, and the importance of taking a holistic approach when it comes to health. Hi, yeah, my name is Thomas Mentenleiter, uh, and I'm president of the Federal Research uh, Institute for Animal Health in Germany. I'm a trained biologist and a virologist. And I also understand that you are the co-chair of the One Health High Level Panel. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, this panel has been established by four partner organizations, WHO, OIE, FAO, and UNEP. Um, and actually we are 26 members from all around the globe, from New Zealand to the west coast of the Americas. I understand One Health, it's not a new concept. It was coined about 20 years ago. But how does this approach differ from human health of the past? Now, actually, the One Health concept uh, is based on the concept of One Medicine, uh, which is even older, it dates back to the 19th, 18th century, uh, that basically says that uh, health of humans and animals is, is very closely related. Um, and with the One Health aspect, a third major component was added, and this is environment. Humans are part of the animal kingdom in a shared environment, and this is basically the One Health approach. So it's not an, an anthropocentric approach as it used to be uh, before, but it's more an approach that takes the whole system into account uh, because we want to basically end up not only with health for humans, and you can't really reach health for humans without realizing health for animals and the environment as well. So that brings up a very good point. What can we as humans, what can our friends and families do as part of this One Health approach? I mean, what we can do in, in the specific purpose, for example, avoiding infections. Uh, we relearned the importance of hygiene during this COVID-19 pandemic. I hope that people remember that for a long time. Um, I hope so, so that too. We don't, so that we don't have to relearn that very quickly again. So this is something that basically everybody can do. Uh, on the other hand, if you really want to sustainably change uh, the situation, this is the theory of change, and I think we have to go much beyond that. I mean, it's our lifestyle, the way we do that. Uh, I mean, is this compatible with a decrease in risk, uh, like, like infections or, or beyond that? And uh, we have now nearly 8 billion population of humans on this planet for an infectious agent. This is an ideal host population, and this is a whole population which is very invasive, so it invades into habitats, into areas, into regions where it didn't go before, at least not um, with, with such high numbers. And it's a highly mobile population. 
So it basically travels all around the globe. So whatever happens, even in, in the furthest corner, um, might end up here in Vienna within 24 hours. Uh, and, and these are situations and changes that we can do individually, but we also need to change uh, the societal aspects. I'd like to hear, how is science technology, more specifically nuclear technology, involved with One Health? We have surveillance, we have hazard analysis, we have identification. What does nuclear have to do with this? It has a research component in, in, in getting better in detecting um, these events sooner and it has a strong implementation component. The International Atomic Energy Agency has, I mean, tradition in working with, with radionuclides in, in, for example, development of diagnostics. The, the main asset is having the infrastructure on the ground for laboratory works. So it's not just research, it's also to implement, uh, basically, I mean, the results. And for the implementation component and for the research component, we need networks, we need researchers, we need laboratories on the ground. One of the, the big ways forward would be to link these different networks, so to really create a one global network with the task of doing in particular this surveillance, this early detection, um, and uh, I mean basically then uh, try to identify uh, these events, identify starting, beginning infection chains very early. And I think it's just a matter of coordination, cooperation, communication. Dr. Mettenleitel made a very key point about the role of labs and their networks. These are our first line of defense and surveillance to identify, detect, and control threats to our health as early as possible. Specifically, veterinary laboratories, for example, across Africa and Asia, they're connected through the vet lab network. Now these labs go beyond your neighborhood vet who may diagnose and treat your pet. These labs are national laboratories that serve the public by identifying infectious agents and other threats to animal and human health. Speaking of networks, their interconnectedness is crucial. This is because we live in an interconnected world. Thanks to the movement of people and the globalization of trade, viruses also move around the world and across borders. This underscores the need for networks, such as the VetLab network, to share experience and best practices. You are listening to Nuclear Explained. In this next segment, I talk with a top expert from Botswana, which is a member of the VetLab network. Botswana, like many countries, mobilized quickly to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and is well equipped to deal with other zoonotic diseases. My name is Samantha Litsolo. I mainly deal with diseases like avian influenza and rabies, which are both zoonoses. Samantha is the Principal Veterinary Officer and Head of the Virology Section at the Botswana National Veterinary Laboratory. Here she tells us more about zoonotic diseases. Globally, zoonotic diseases account for around 65 to 70% of emerging or re-emerging infectious diseases. That means they are quite common when it comes to infectious diseases of people. They're quite common, but in recent times, can you tell us some of the most well-known diseases that we've come across. For example, rabies has a history of around 4,000 years. It's a neglected zoonotic disease, which we need to deal with because it's 100% preventable. And yet at the same time, it has a very high death rate of around 100% oh. of the people who develop clinical signs. So what is key to note though, is that the disease is very common in the Asian area 
and Africa region with around 59,000 deaths. Then with avian influenza, it has been known to cause zoonoses in people, especially with the H5N1 <laughs> or the H5 um, subgroup and the H7 subgroup. Then the other groups which are at risk of becoming zoonoses, so even those are being monitored globally. Then other diseases which can occur, but even so, we hardly see them, is Salmonella, Brucella, and Anthrax. We do have active and pa passive surveillance for these especially with salmonella and brucella in meat and meat products as well as in milk and mm. other dairy products so how common is it that zoonotic diseases are transmitted through food or food related products it is something that is actually there as a present risk so for that reason there's a monitoring of food from farm to fork in our country, because we've been monitoring for a long time, we hardly see um, something like Salmonella or Brucella. We'd keep on screening for them, whether they're there or not, just to make sure that the food we have at the table is safe. Even if it's not a problem in your country, you still monitor for them to make sure that the food you give to people is safe for human consumption. Specifically in Botswana, can you tell us about how your country has been handling the current pandemic? First of all, we took the One Health approach. And then secondly, um, we took all the key stakeholders and have them assist us in planning for how we are going to address the COVID-19 situation. So we've adopted testing as much as we can, whether it's at border entry points or following up whereby there was a case, then we check other people in that area to see if they might have picked being in contact for that person or pe those people mm -hmm. also on top of the testing we've adopted vaccination of people we're trying to reach herd immunity we are trying to reach like 70 to 80 percent at least vaccination of people in our country it's the first time we've had to deal with zoonotic disease on such a large scale so there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it what does testing and detecting look like in Botswana? We do use um, RT-PCR for our surveillance in Botswana. And with PCR tests, have they ever been used as much as they are being used today? Um, we have been using PCR testing, especially RT-PCR, for quite a while. For example, for avian influenza, we've been surveying since 2012. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, that means we had to upscale, we had to engage multiple key stakeholders, including the veterinary lab, until there was enough capacity in the health side for us to become that backup at, as the veterinary lab. It's the largest scale that has been used that, mm -hmm. and, but everybody rallied around and it's, it's come to work quite well. PCR. Most of us have taken PCR tests over the last two years whether a gargle test with a saline solution or a nose swab. PCR is short for polymerase chain reaction. It's one of the most accurate laboratory methods to detect, track, and study the coronavirus. But what is it exactly? A PCR test is very uh, common now uh, with the outbreaks of COVID-19. And in this case, uh, we use it for detecting uh, the spread of, of diseases. This is Yaret Farun to tell us more. He is the head of the Animal Production and Health Section at the IAEA. So we can very, very specifically detect and diagnose and identify a specific pathogen via the PCR test. It makes from one copy of DNA, which is the target of, of let's say, a, a virus, 
uh, into millions and millions and millions of copies, which makes it easy for, for us as the diagnosticians to detect it. In addition to PCR tests, we've also been hearing about RT-PCR and real-time RT-PCR. Can you explain the differences between these three? There's many of these acronyms that are floating around. A PCR test is just the amplification of DNA. Now, an, an RT-PCR, or let's say a reverse transcription PCR, is, is to transcribe an RNA pathogen to DNA, and then we amplify the DNA in a normal PCR reaction. Then we have real-time reverse transcription PCR, which means that instead of where we, with normal PCR, we have to analyze the product after the PCR reaction, we now, during the test, can, can see how the, the amplification is going along. So we can see how many amplicons there are, which can relate directly to the quantity that we, of the input uh, pathogen there is. Besides PCR tests, how else is nuclear involved in addressing zoonotic diseases and the pandemic? It is a good question. You know, the most popular test that we have at the moment for either looking at nucleic acid, which is the PCR test, and also antibodies, uh, which is an ELISA test, we call it enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay test, are both nuclear-derived technologies, which, which meant that they had their feet in pure nuclear activities. And we are using them because they are so sensitive and so specific. You're listening to Nuclear Explained. Both PCR and ELISA were first developed in the 1970s and 80s. And they complement each other well. We have PCR tests to detect the pathogen, in this case the COVID-19 virus, and then we have ELISA to detect antibodies which our body produces to fight off the virus. Beyond these tests, Yarrett will tell us how other nuclear applications are helping us fight against harmful viruses. Other tests that use direct nuclear applications at the moment are, for instance, irradiation technologies, by which we would take a, a pathogen or a virus, irradiate that, and then use it for its potential to be a, a vaccine in, in, in future. Another one is to use stable isotopes. And the interesting thing of this is we can use that to trace migratory birds, for instance, to see where they were last year, where they are now overwintering or oversummering, and where they would end up. Together with that, we can also follow whether they are carrying avian influenza, for instance, or Newcastle disease, or other, other diseases that, that they carry with them. Interesting. So we have um, nuclear really involved from tracing migratory birds to producing vaccines, as well as detecting viruses. What exactly is the IAEA doing? What does the International Atomic Energy Agency have to do with combating COVID-19 and zoonotic diseases? The International Atomic Energy Agency is a partner with the Food and Agriculture Organization for the last 60 years. And the reason for that is to use nuclear applications in food and agriculture because it has such a huge potential and advantages. The International Atomic Energy Agency is one of the few, if not the only, international organization with a research and development laboratory. That helps us to use the nuclear applications, whether uh, it is applicable into human health or whether it's applicable in animal health. Zoonotic diseases and pandemics are not um, new to us. Uh, we have seen a number of, of pandemics over the, over the last uh, 20 years, for instance, with Ebola, with Zika, 
with avian influenza, with SARS-CoV-2, uh, with uh, MERS corona, and now with, with COVID-19. The agency or the International Atomic Energy Agency was intimately involved in all the cases. And the reason for that is that we have the advantage of this research and development laboratory by which we can evaluate, validate and distribute technologies that can be applicable everywhere in the world. Given our experience with this pandemic, how do you see the scientific community, governments handling a future pandemic? This time when the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, was discovered and it uh, caused this pandemic that is holding us uh, present for the last uh, almost two years, the member states of the International Atomic Energy Agency urged the agency to be better prepared and respond better. That laid the foundation for the Zodiac project, which is a project to look at zoonotic diseases and to try and prevent their future pandemic uh, potential. Now, this is a very, very uh, important initiative. It is in collaboration with, with our uh, uh, other international organizations like uh, Food and Agriculture Organization with the OIE, the World uh, uh, Animal Health uh, uh, Organization, of course, also WHO, the World Health Organization, and others like African Union and various other international organizations. The idea of, of Zodiac is to be better prepared for future pandemics. We have seen now that uh, in, with the last uh, number of pandemics, we actually run behind the, the ball. We are not in, in front of the curve. And with Zodiac, uh, together uh, with its uh, application and fitting into the One Health initiative, of course, uh, we hope to be better prepared in identifying the pathogens or the potential pandemic effects before they take place in the humans. Our focus is mainly on the animal side of things. So we look at the ecosystem, we look at uh, wildlife, we look at livestock and the diseases that circulate within them. And we want to be prepared or to identify the spillover effect before it gets into humans. Uh, and we hope that Zodiac can contribute uh, to this uh, and its contribution to, to the One Health to achieve this. You're listening to Nuclear Explained. We've all seen and experienced how damaging a pandemic can be. In light of all the efforts and lessons learned and being learned, I went back to Thomas Mentleider to ask him the million dollar question. Can we stop another pandemic from happening in the future? I'm a little skeptical because I mean, as I said, this is nature. Um, I think we're getting better. We are getting better time-wise. It was months uh, in, in the last pandemics in the last century before this was actually realized and control was, was started. And now we are down to very few weeks. We need to get a little better, but I mean, this, this might indeed be um, achievable. And this is what I firmly believe. On the other hand, since we don't know what the next pandemic will actually be, the only thing we know, it, it will come. Um, where will it uh, come from? Uh, which agent will it be? How will it happen? Nobody can really answer with certainty. But we are, hopefully after uh, this pandemic, we are much better prepared um, for early detection and for early uh, start of control measures. I don't think we can reduce the risk to zero. Um, there is no zero risk in life anyway. But I think we can work on, first of all, reducing risky contacts as soon as we identify them uh, and uh, we will become better in early detection. So hopefully we all keep fingers crossed uh, then the next one won't 
happen in the next five years, probably. What have we learned today? Of all the new and emerging human infectious diseases, some three quarters originate in animals. Most of zoonoses happens indirectly, for example, through the food we eat. It's also inevitable. We live in the proximity of animals, so it's normal that we will face further zoonotic diseases in the future. But don't worry, with our collective efforts, as Dr. Mettenleitner explained, we will become better in identifying, detecting and controlling future diseases. And it turns out, nuclear has a lot to do with these efforts. And as you will learn in this series of podcasts, nuclear has a lot to do with the rest of our lives. Beyond the pandemic, nuclear is used for cancer treatment, food production, energy, you name it. But underlying the use of nuclear is safety. In the next episode, we will discuss how the world of nuclear safety has improved in the last decade since the Fukushima Daiichi accident. We would love to hear your feedback and questions. Let us know your thoughts and send us a voice recording or write to us at nuclearexplained at iaea.org. I'm Joanne Liu. And I'm Miklos Gaspar. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to Nuclear Explained.